I was thinking this Thanksgiving about many of the Thanksgivings I celebrated as a kid. And one of the things we would often do when I was a child is we would load up the car and um, we would head to my grandparents' homes and sometimes do two Thanksgivings at each grandparent's home. So both of them lived near each other, about a half hour away from where we lived. And one thing I remember as a kid was when we would get close to my grandparents' home, you always knew it because of this bad smell. We used to always talk about it as kids. It's like we know we're close to grandma and grandpa's because it stinks. And the stink was because all my grandparents lived in Akron, Ohio. And if you know Akron, Ohio, Akron, Ohio at that time was the home of all the four uh, major uh, rubber makers, makers of tires. And so General Tire and Goodrich and Goodyear and Firestone all had their headquarters located in Akron, Ohio. And, and that's where most of the tires in the United States at that time were produced. So when you got close to Akron, we used to talk about the smell of Akron because it was the smell of burning rubber. You didn't have to know you crossed a border. You just smelled your way into the city. And we knew that was Grandma and Grandpa's home. My grandparents all came to um, Akron, Ohio because of the rubber companies. All four of them worked in the rubber companies when they were young. Matter of fact, all of them came during the 20s and 30s, and that was a time when a lot of people moved to Akron to take jobs in the rubber companies. It was a time in between the world wars, and following World War I, a lot of industries had a real problem finding people to, to take the jobs that they had, to man the industries. Uh, a lot of young men had lost their lives in the war, and so there was a shortage of young men in some ways, and there were still actually high enlistment rates, so many young men were still joining the military even after the war. And because of fears of foreigners that had kind of grown through that time and prejudices against foreigners, they had suddenly enacted very strict immigration laws. And so a lot of these industries really had trouble hiring people, finding people. So in the Midwest, several um, companies did what all the companies in Akron, Ohio did. They looked for some place to find a group of workers that they could enlist and bring. And that was the time that's often described as the Appalachian Migration. So a lot of people during that period of time, especially in West Virginia and Kentucky, these rubber companies went down and recruited people, people often who were undereducated, uh, people who were often in poverty and had little opportunity for employment, and they would bring them up to Akron, Ohio. So if you go to Akron, Ohio today, many, many people whose grandparents are from Kentucky and West Virginia, find a lot of them. All of my grandparents came out of Kentucky and West Virginia, came up to Akron, Ohio, and took jobs. Matter of fact, uh, companies built whole neighborhoods to provide good housing for those that were migrating up there. My parents lived in Firestone Park and Goodyear Heights, neighborhoods built by the companies um, as they moved up there and lived. And my grandparents, especially my grandfathers, both came out of real poverty. Uh, one of my grandfather tells the story about how um, he was in such poverty that as a young child, as a fairly young boy, he was asked to move to live with an uncle. And he said living with that uncle was pretty much uh, living in slavery. The uncle took him in kind of on the condition that he would be a farmhand. Gave him very, very limited kind of housing and food with the idea that he would work for his keep. And he said pretty well he grew up just getting by and working to get by. So when that opportunity came to come to Akron, Ohio, he was quick to leave family and friends and do whatever he had to do to take that job opportunity. And, and later in life, and I really didn't know any of this story when I was young, but later in life, hearing this story, 
My grandfather, I think, believed that everything he had was a remarkable blessing. To be able to have a, a solid, stable home for his family, something that he really never dreamed he'd have. To be able to always know there'd be food on the table. To be able to provide a good education for his kids. To him, every bit of it was a blessing. He celebrated every part of it. You go to Firestone Park where they lived, very modest little bungalows everywhere. Again, these factory-built homes. These little homes with little bedrooms, little kitchens, one bathroom, and they all look kind of the same all over the place. They lived in one of those their whole life. But my grandfather loved that home, and he considered it a remarkable blessing. It's funny, though, just, just a couple generations later as I come along, you know, one, it's a story I really didn't hear until much later in life, didn't know anything about it. It wasn't until I got searching for some of that that I found out some of it. But also, many of the things that were provided to me because of those sacrifices that my grandparents made, because of the choices that they made and the things they considered great blessings, many of those things that I then enjoyed that were produced out of that, to me really didn't seem much like a blessing. You know that is? They were things that to me were just, that's the way life is. Those things that my grandfather looked at and thought how remarkable I can provide these things, to me they, they were kind of the baseline. This is the stuff you expect. Matter of fact, I would have been a victim if any of those were taken away. This is just the stuff of life. It's not something I celebrate or I call a blessing. It's interesting how quickly that story gets lost, isn't it? That story of blessing, that story of sacrifice, that story of of what a remarkable thing this is. Just two generations later, it's forgotten and it's gone. I tell that story because I think that's sort of the story of Judges. It's a story where how quickly a story of blessing, a story of God's goodness gets lost. How quickly it's forgotten. If you look at Judges, um, Judges is that period and again, we've been walking through the Old Testament, you know, and so that's why we've come to Judges. I told Bob when I said it's my turn to kind of go into Judges, and I said it's not a real Thanksgiving kind of book, you know. So if you're looking for a Thanksgiving sermon, you're not getting it today. But you come to the book of Judges, and you, you walk into the book of Judges. It's, it's a period of time that was in between the death of Joshua and the coronation of King Saul. And during this period was the period of the Judges. And we think of judges often as people preside over a trial and hand down judgment. Or maybe we think of them as people who settle disputes. But these judges, even though they may have done some of that, that wasn't really their primary rule. These judges were, were primarily leaders who God would raise up because of specific needs of his people Israel. They were, they were raised up primarily to be deliverers of the people Israel who were under oppression because of their enemies. And they were to deliver them, to rescue them. So they were really leaders. They were leaders in a sense, judges I guess, in the sense that they were acting out the justice of God upon his enemies. But not judges so much in the way we often think about it. And I want to remind you what kind of leads up to this period of time in Israel's history. So you remember, they, Moses leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, under, under God's protection, he leads them out of Egypt. Remember the parting of the Red Sea and they cross on dry ground, they go into the wilderness and they make their way with lots of kind of failures along the way and rebellion at times and whining and complaining, but they make their way over to the promised land that God has promised that he'll provide for them. A land flowing with milk and honey, he says. Takes them there and they're on the other side of the Jordan, they send their spies in to see what's going on in that land. 
to see who's now there. And the spies come back and report, Joshua and Caleb report to them that there are mighty people there, that they are more numerous than the people of Israel. But again, you remember Caleb, but we can take them, no problem, you know. But the people of Israel begin again to whine and to complain and to not have faith in God that he can conquer those people that he's promised that he will. And God at that point tells them that because of their rebellion, because of their lack of faith, they will not enter that promised land. Uh, They will stay in the wilderness. And it will be their next generation, their children, who will then be taken in and will receive that blessing of the promised land. And Joshua and Caleb will be the only two who are that original group that left Egypt who will get to enter that promised land eventually. So we have that wilderness wanderings, and then eventually that whole generation dies out, and now Joshua leads this next generation into the promised land. And we're told the story in Joshua that they come to the Jordan, and God, God literally stops the flow of the river. It's like a big invisible wall goes up, and the river stops flowing. And again, the people of Israel walk across on dry land into the promised land. And as they go in, they send back 12 men, 12 leaders who were chosen to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and they all take a stone out of the center of the Jordan River, out of this dry riverbed now. And they take that stone with them, and they take it to the place that they're going to encamp in Gilgal, and they set up those stones, stack up all 12 stones as a monument, a way of remembering what God had just done for them, that God brought them into this promised land, the miraculous way he did it. Remember who God is. Remember what God's done. And then from that encampment, they went out and they carried out these military um, maneuvers. They went out and conquered the land, as they had been told to do. And every time they would go out and conquer the land and God would bless their endeavors, they would come back to that camp and they'd see that stack of 12 stones and they would remember who did it. They would remember who brought them there and remember what he had done for them. And they'd go out and they'd come back And again, reminders again and again of what God had done for them and who God was. That's the story that leads up to this time in the book of Judges. Now, there's some troubling questions that come up when you go to Judges or read the book of Joshua. You know, why did God choose to completely destroy all the people who were now living in the land of Canaan? Why not just drive them out? Uh, Why not do as he did through Jonah with the Ninevites who were an evil people? Why not kind of give them this warning, this second chance at repentance why, why use the Israelites to bring judgment upon these people and to completely destroy them? Why do all that? All I can tell you is I'm not going to try and answer those questions today. I think those are good discussions, worthy discussions. Um, not sure I could answer them, but I'm not going to try today. What I do want to point out, though, is that their instructions were very clear. They knew exactly what they were to do as they went into that land. God was clear with them. One of the places you see that is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 1, says this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your son. For they will turn your children away from following me and to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. 
This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then he makes clear a little later in Deuteronomy, I'm not using you as my instrument of judgment against these people because you're a better people. He says this in Deuteronomy 9.4, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. You are simply instruments of God's judgment. Not because you're better people, not because you're more righteous. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, you are actually a stiff-necked people. You are also a rebellious people. But you are simply going to be serving God's plan. You have been chosen to carry out God's plan, and this is part of God's plan. And here's how you're to do it. Make sure you follow those instructions. And so then we come to, Josh, I mean, to the book of Judges in chapter 1. The people of Israel are now in this promised land of Canaan. They've again, many of these military conquests have been carried out as they've been instructed to do. God has brought them victory in each of these conquests. And now Joshua dies. And, and the, kind of believe the last of these people who, had, who understood and experienced um, what God had done for them in the wilderness, how he brought them across the Jordan. Eventually these people die. We lose these people. And they're asking, so now how do we proceed? What do we do? How do we, how do we now move forward if we don't have the leadership of Joshua? And they're being sent out tribe by tribe to conquer the rest of these areas that still need to be conquered. And as Judges starts out, it seems like things go pretty well. You know, things are happening pretty well. But then things seem to devolve in some way where we start getting hints of things not going as they should. So they go out and they conquering. Judah goes out, does what they're supposed to do. But as the other tribes go out, we hear that, you know, there were some people that they couldn't drive out and they couldn't destroy and they allowed them to stay. Some they did defeat, but we hear that they've turned them into forced labor for themselves. Instead of destroying them as they were told to do, they let them be forced labor. Later in the book of Judges, we hear there was intermarrying going on. Later in the book of Judges, we hear that they allowed their temples and their idols to remain in many places. So again, started kind of moving away from what they were to do. Unless you think that they didn't defeat these people because somehow God didn't bless them and they weren't able, in Judges chapter 2, we're told that no, it was clearly because of their disobedience that they didn't have victory. So we're not told all the details, but all we know is in some way they were disobedient, and that disobedience resulted in them not having victory over these people. And God ultimately says to them, because you were disobedient, I'm actually going to give you what you've chosen. In a sense, their punishment is you get what you want. Your punishment is these people are going to stay, they're going to be a thorn in your flesh, and their idols are going to be a snare to you. Constantly, you're going to be troubled by these people because you didn't do as I said and drive them out and destroy all their idols. And you're going to struggle because of it. You get what you chose. But then in 2.10, again, I said the generation dies, but here's where the, that previous generation dies in 2.10. Here in 2.10, everybody... Not only Joshua, but everybody who was of that earlier generation that had crossed the Jordan finally dies out. And then we hear these words. Um, this next generation knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. 
think about that. In one generation, these remarkable miracles have happened. In two generations ago, parting of the Red Sea, brought across on dry land, the remarkable miracles in the wilderness. And then their parents brought across the Jordan on dry ground, these remarkable battles and victories that were brought by the hand of God. And now their children don't know these stories. Now, I'm not sure they didn't know any of the details, but they don't know these stories. They don't own them. They're not affected by them. They, they're meaningless to them if they even knew them at all. Somehow in one generation, those things have been lost from them. And then what happens because they've forgotten those stories? We're told that they began to serve the Baals and the Asterisks. The word Baal simply means Lord or Master. It's a word that could have been applied to several of the false gods, but generally it was applied to the Canaanite god of the storm, the god over the weather, who controlled the weather. And the Asterisk was the goddess of, of power, the goddess of love and of war. And in Canaanite writing, she's often a consort of Baal. And so these two gods were told that they began to serve. Why? Why turn to them instead of following the God of their parents, Yahweh, the God of Israel? What was the attraction to following the Baals and the Asterisks and, and worshiping those gods? Well, think about it. They come to this new land, this land where there's a people living there, this land that's flourishing in many ways, this prosperous land. And these people are there. These people know the land, who know how to work the land, who obviously are prosperous in the land. And we're now living in their midst. We're living amongst them. We're using them to accomplish the things we want to accomplish. They've been pretty successful here. And who are their gods? Who do they worship? Well, they worship gods that are gods primarily of fertility. They're gods who are gods they worship to meet their immediate needs. In, in an agricultural society, weather is of utmost importance. Baal, the god who controls the weather, they worship him. In a, with tribal warfare going on all the time, nations always ready to come in and take what you have, war is a big deal. Um, war is always threatening, and they worship this god, Asterisk. And even fertility of the womb, very important thing. Because fertility within the family, large families mean prosperity. Large families mean safety. These are the things that met their immediate needs. They cared about deeply. They seem to be doing well. They worship those gods. Why not try that? Why not include those things in what we do? Because those are the things we care about right now, right? Wealth and prosperity and large families. And matter of fact, these gods even were worshipped in ways that brought sensual pleasure care about those things why not worship these gods um, one of the ways they would worship Ashtoreth was they would go to the temple prostitutes and they, these acts these immoral acts before the gods were acts that were done to encourage them to bless you to appease the gods that we might then receive blessing from them they have very specific rules about how they were to carve idols because if you carve the idols right if you follow the rules right then you believe the deity would come to indwell that idol in some way indwell the idol and then you could make sacrifices to that idol, you could care for that idol in a certain way, and then that idol would bless you, would make the land a fertile land, would bring you the right weather, would make sure that you had children, would bring you power and victory in your wars. See what they're doing? They have gods that in some ways that we can manage them and they will serve us. If we do it right, 
If we appease them in the right way, if we carve them in the right way and sacrifice in the right way, these gods will now serve our needs and we can get the things we need. They're just very manageable gods. So they turn to them and they begin serving them. And I don't think they're that different than us. It's easy to say that they, you know, false idols, who would do that? They used the things that met the needs they had. And they managed them in the best way they could to meet those things they longed for and feel like they're in their hands. Finally, as you go through Judges chapter 2, we get our first exposure to this cycle that we will see repeated again and again throughout the book of Judges. Many of you are familiar with it. cycle kind of goes like this. They've turned to other gods. They're false, worshiping false gods. God becomes angry, we're told. And God says because of this rebellion, because of them turning their back on him, he puts them under oppression of their enemies. They are now threatened by their enemies. He uses their own enemies against them. The ones they were to drive out now will become a tool that God will use to test them, we're told. So he tests them under the oppression of their enemies. And eventually, under that oppression, they cry out and they turn to God and they cry out to him. And then we're told that God has compassion upon them in their groaning. Again and again we're told that. He has compassion upon them in their groaning. That even though they have rebelled against him, turned their back on him, chosen other gods, he has compassion upon them. And in his compassion, he raises up a judge, a rescuer, a deliverer, who will lead them out of this oppression, have victory over their enemies, and back out of oppression, And then they have this period of rest, this period of restoration. And then we hear this phrase again and again. And once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As you go through the book of Judges, in one way or another, you'll hear that phrase again and again and again. Brought them out, and once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 2.19 tells us not only did they turn back to rebellion and turn back to their false gods, but each time they turned back, they went a little deeper into it. They sunk a little deeper into sin, into the wickedness around them, which I don't think so strange if you think about it. You know, every time that you kind of turn back to those old sinful ways, don't you now have to kind of shut yourself off to God a little, a little more intensely? Don't you have to be a little more intentional about the fact that these gods never really worked before? Now, if I'm going to turn back to them with the hope that they will provide for me what I want, I have to almost be intentionally blind, a little more you know, shut myself off to reality a little more. Dig in a little deeper. Grab hold a little harder with hope that this time it'll work for me. And that's how the cycle goes around and around again, all through the book of Judges. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to us? I don't believe that we have been sent as instruments of God's judgment to the world around us. So it doesn't really apply in that way. Our job isn't to go and carry out his judgment on our neighbors, on the people who live here. I don't think the things that apply, many of the things that apply to Israel as a nation apply to us as a nation. They were specifically chosen as a nation to accomplish something in God's purposes as his chosen people. Those things don't apply in the same way to us. We can't kind of make all these national applications in the same way. So how do we apply these things to us? What do they have to do with us? I want to suggest at least four things. First thing is, I don't think secondhand faith is ever really enough. If you look at this story, you know, it's not enough that we kind of got our God immunization when we're young. That we, that we got something of God, we kind of learned the facts, and now we got it covered. And now we go on and live our life and things will be okay. This story reminds us of the fact that everybody needs that firsthand personal 
relationship with God. We need to again and again remember the things that God has done and who God is in our lives. We need to personally come back to him again and again and again. The faith of our parents isn't enough. The fact I went to church as a kid isn't enough. The fact I know some of the facts, that isn't enough. We need continually to turn back and be in relationship with our God. I think it's why we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I think it's why we remind you again and again of the importance of personally turning to God's Word, of spending time with God in prayer, of corporately coming together and worshiping, that we regularly turn our faces back towards God, remember who He is, be reminded of what He's done, and we personally have firsthand experience of that relationship with God. Not enough that you just know the details. It sure wasn't enough for them. We need stones of remembrance in our life. We need those things that continually remind us these blessings aren't because of you. These, these things that you start to think are just commonplace, that somehow you earned or somehow you deserve, they truly are blessings from God. We need to remember that again and again and again in every way we possibly can. I love Thanksgiving. It's a time we stop and remember the things we should be thankful for. We need Thanksgiving moments all through our life, stones of remembrance in our life. Secondly, I think we need to be careful not to underestimate the pull of the unbelieving world around us. 1 John 2, 15-17 says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and this is what I think Scripture refers to in this case when it's talking about world. It's not just saying this, these people, world, this, this system of thought, these powers around you, and people, but people who are serving this system, this, this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, the world around you. Uh, this comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We need to be careful. The world influences us. I've told the story before about when I was a, first a youth pastor in Connecticut, um, I was a youth pastor, but I was also, because of my background in counseling, doing a lot of counseling with people in the church. And the senior pastor came to me one day and, and said to me, you know, you're in there counseling a lot. You're in there a lot of times with women alone counseling. I, I think we ought to have a, door, a window on your door. You know, it'd probably be good to put a window in your door just to everybody to feel safe. And I said, oh, sure, that's a great idea. But inside I was thinking, that's stupid. Like, I need a window on my door. What do you think I'm doing in there? Who do you think I am? That's just so stupid. I don't need that. I would never do anything wrong. Today, I would never be in that situation without being in a more public setting, a window in my door. Not because I today believe I would make the wrong choices anymore than I believe then, but because I have sat with enough people who have made those choices. Because I've heard the stories again and again of people who equally believe they would never make those kind of choices and who've made them. And I think, why in the world would I want to risk those kinds of things for myself or for the church or for those that I counsel with? Why would I not want to take every protection to make sure I do the right thing? Of course I would do that. That's not being... I don't want to be naive about the fact that evil is a powerful thing. That the temptations that I face are the same temptations everybody faces. And I am just as likely to fail as they have failed. Let's not be naive about those things. I'm not arguing here that we need to somehow pull away in a little bubble and separate ourselves from the world around us. I actually think Scripture teaches the opposite. 
We are called to go out into our world to be light and salt. We are called to be in it. But if you're in it, don't be naive to the reality that you can be tempted by compromise and accommodation just like the people in Israel were. How, how easy it was to slowly make compromises, to accommodate the things around us and kind of blend them into our lives and say, you know, I understand maybe some of those things are wrong, but they won't really affect me. I can handle those things. I can still make right choices. I can't tell you how many people I sit with who, who are with me in tears, who are telling me about their regret over choices they made. And their story again and again and again is, I really didn't think I would make that choice. I really didn't think that was a danger to me. I really thought I could handle that. I think one of the most dangerous things to our Christian life is just being naive, intentionally being blind to the dangers around us. Be in the world, but when you're in the world, face the reality. That's rough. We need the armor of God. We need one another as we go out into that situation. We need regularly to turn our faces back towards God. We need corporate worship. We need the body of Christ. We need to be in God's word. We need prayer. We need the protection of the Spirit. We need those things. Don't be so arrogant as to think that you're above that. None of us are above that. So, be careful not to underestimate the pull of the unbelieving world around you. Don't think that secondhand faith is enough. Third, be quick to look for a deliverer. One of the things that strikes me as I look at this cycle in the book of Judges that goes round and round and round, I've heard it described in different ways. One of the ways I've, I've heard it described before is rebellion, reckoning, repentance, rescue, and rest. Rebellion, reckoning, repentance, rescue, and rest. And the cycle goes round and round. Again, as I read that story, I think I know that cycle. I've, I've lived in that cycle. I'm still living in that cycle. Later, I hear the Apostle Paul talk about it. Sounds like he was stuck in that cycle at times. He understood what it was to, to feel like, oh, no, I want to do the things that I shouldn't do, and I don't want to do the things that I should do. We know that cycle, don't we? All of us do. I don't know that until Christ comes again that we're ever really free from that, that we'll ever know freedom from that pull and that, that struggle. But the cool thing is that our Deliverer has come, that those judges were simply a a dim representation of the deliverer who came in Jesus Christ, the one who saves us. Our deliverer is always available to us. He is always here. We can always turn to him and, and he will save. He will rescue. We don't have to stay in that cycle the way they did and wait. Matter of fact, I may get stuck in that cycle, but I, I think the trick in many ways is I want that rebellion and reckoning and repentance to be a very small part of that cycle. I would like it to get smaller and smaller and smaller. I want to be quick to be a person who recognizes sometimes, that, ask the question sometimes, could it be that, that my frustration, that my struggles, even my pain, even the oppression that I feel, could it be God's mercy in some way saying to me, consider the direction you're going? Ask questions. Now, I'm not saying every time we suffer, it's the hand of God telling us to to change directions. But do I ever ask that question? Do I ever consider that oppression and struggle and suffering is maybe the mercy of God in my life doing what he said he did for the nation of Israel? He tested them. He tested them. He gave them an opportunity to look at, are you moving in right directions? Are you doing what's right? You now have the opportunity to choose otherwise through the test. 
consider those things. Consider that's not a right direction. And now look for that deliverer. Look for the one who can rescue it from, rescue you from it and follow him. It's a merciful thing. I love this uh, quote from Eugene Peterson. He says this, One of the frequently misunderstood features of the gospel by outsiders, maybe the most frequently misunderstood is this, that a confession of sin isn't a groveling omission that I'm a terrible person. It doesn't require what's sometimes described as beating yourself up. Insiders to the gospel know that the sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, is a sentence full of hope. It's full of hope because it's a sentence full of God. Only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to the God who saves me from my sin. If I'm ignorant of or indifferent to my sin, I'm ignorant of or indifferent to the great and central good news, Jesus saves. In the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyways, but to recognize and confess sin. Now, don't hear him saying, I'm light on sin. Sin doesn't matter. His point is, you know what's most important in facing your sin and finding your sin? It's not to feel wonderful about the fact I see sin. That's not the end of the story. You've not done anything that matters by being someone who can say, that's sin. I know that's sin, and I can wallow in the horror of my sin. In fact, he goes on to say, you know, the, the less said about sin, the better. Face it. But the whole goal is, look at grace. You must see sin so you'll understand grace. But don't spend time in your sin. Let sin always be something that moves you to look to God, to cling to his grace, and to begin celebrating that remarkable grace that's yours. How do we get out of this horrible cycle that we're stuck in? We be people who are quick to look for grace. We be people who are quick to confess before our God because we know we serve a God who is quick to forgive and to restore. I want that period of rest and restoration to be the majority of that cycle for me. I want to live in it as long as I possibly can. I absolutely want the people of God to help me, to hold me accountable, to call me to consider the choices I'm making so that I don't fall back into that trap again. But when I do, and I know I will, I also want to be quick to turn back to that deliverer who is always there waiting for me, who is always quick to save and to restore. Finally, fourth, possibly the most important point of application really has nothing to do with what we're to do. I think it has to do with understanding who God is. This is a repeated story of failure. Again and again and again they fail and they rebel. This is also a story of God's remarkable perseverance in chasing after the hearts of his people, isn't it? It's a remarkable story of God's repeated mercies towards them and his grace. Again and again he has compassion upon them when they groan. They are suffering because of their own sin, the things they deserve. He had to bring that upon them to test them, to turn their hearts back towards him. And yet he has compassion on them as they suffer. He aches for them as they go through this. Even though he's doing what is best for them to turn them back to him, he still aches as they go through it for him. Can't wait for them to turn back and be delivered from it. God loves to save us from those things that we even bring upon ourselves if we'll just turn our faces towards him. The moral of this story, God is very, very slow to give up on us. And God is our great deliverer. In sending the judges, the judges weren't the deliverers. The judges were instruments of deliverance that came from God. Jesus Christ now, our God, is our deliverer. He's available to us. Let's not lose our connection to that story. 
that most important story in our lives. We are the people of God. God saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, what a remarkable um, way of remembering the fact that we have a God who loves to deliver and save uh, the image of the cross. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to look at stories like the book of Judges and to feel some sense of despair. Despair in the fact that, that sin is so enticing, uh, that it so easily entangles us. We see their story and we recognize in so many ways it's our story. But Father, we are thankful uh, that the God they, they knew, the God who pursued them, who came to them, the God who again and again rescued them is our God. We are so thankful that you loved us enough to send your very own son, that he might die for us, to rescue us, to save us from our sins. Pray, Lord, that we would not only know that, that we might ultimately have relationship with you, but we might daily cling to that, that we might continue to live for you. In your blessed name, amen.